you see the uh, the Taylor Swift news? Oh, Taylor Swift, um, the, the movie? Uh, yeah, Emmy has 12 tickets. Uh, does she really? Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, so, so uh, I did I tell you I, I sat in line for concert tickets? In general, like, like before you, when you were like, when? Like recently or? Yeah, yeah the, the, the like. Life? No, like the last oh, one. For Swi- oh, for Taylor Swift? You for Taylor in line? Swift. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was miserable. And it was <laughs> stupid. And everyone involved. I, and this can't just be Ticketmaster's fault. I'm sorry, but yeah. someone from her camp is involved. In t- so, so my wife was out of town, so she needed me to do this for her. She had you have to sign up for an email, and it, then you get randomly picked to get an email to get a code. Uh-huh. Then you have to use that code to get into a waiting room, and you have to be in the waiting room. They tell you to be in there an when hour ahead of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I was in this waiting room an hour ahead of time. And then finally they say, okay, now it's time. Hit refresh. And the first people to hit refresh, they get led into the, the room. Too. This so feels I, like it too does, many steps. It this does is like not too matter. Many steps. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the waiting room. That has nothing yeah. to do with it. Hit it is just, it's just how fast you can hit refresh. So <laughs> I hit refresh. It was 21 seconds. It was 3 p.m. and 21 seconds. I hit refresh and I was uh, like 23,000th in line. And then I sat for an hour and a half while everyone else bought their tickets and it came to me and it popped up and every first off, everything that is available is behind the stage. You cannot see yeah. at all, which yeah. first off is should be illegal that they even sell those <laughs> seats. Um, yeah. Just change the just change the stage layout or don't sell yeah. the seats. It's so stupid. Um, yeah. But every time obstructed I clicked on view, uh, obstructed yeah. view seats or whatever, it literally says like no view like you, you can't <laughs> see here. Um you can hear great, but you yeah. just can't see it. And then, so every, it would pop up like, well, you, I, you know, I put in like, I want four seats and it'd be like, well, here's four seats. And I'd click it and it'd say, ah, sorry, somebody just bought that. And then you'd go back and you'd refresh and it'd say, well, here's four seats. And you click that and you go, ah, sorry, somebody just bought that too. I sat in the like purchase section for 30 minutes, just clicking. It would say, buy these four seats. I'd click it and it'd say, ah, sorry, somebody bought that. And then it was, and then they were just, and then they're like, all right, that's it. All the tickets are gone. And I'm just like, I don't, why did I wait four hours to then like fight people? Like if, if I waited that long, my checkout time should be private, you know? Yes. If yes. I wait that long, my four tickets should be, I should have, I told them ahead of time I wanted four. If I've waited four hours in line now, they should come to me and say, here's your four tickets. Enter your credit card number. Like, yeah. Why did I wait four hours to <laughs> then like fight told, people online? Yeah. Let me tell like too, too late. But then that that all takes me back to yeah. She the other day the AMC ones went on sale and she sent me like a screenshot of her in the like queue to buy the AMC tickets and it just gave me yeah. like PTSD. <laughs> to... Um yeah, I I think I'm gonna go to that. Uh, it's if I can find tickets. I feel like, I mean, in terms of business model, like love her or hate Taylor Swift, she she is one of the the smartest like brand controllers if that mm-hmm. makes like, like she can really wrangle her fandom uh in a good way and sometimes a bad way but uh <laughs> but, but with this one um uh i think it's fascinating just like i mean the big thing is like the amount of effect she has i, I read a, i read a number i don't know how true it is that like in terms of like u.s economy she brought like five billion dollars to the u.s economy this year just based off of <laughs> concert 
ticket sales. That's uh, crazy because that's her uh, that's her carbon emissions from last year too. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, we're gonna get so much hate if we have <laughs> no. But I'm 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 applauding her because like I I think it's I think it's hysterical that she went to these studios like, hey, we made this movie for twenty million dollars. Let's make a deal where like you can release it, you can distribute it, and make X amount of money, and we'll make X amount of money. And every studio is like, no, we want the <laughs> full thing. And her dad, being her dad, was just like, well, let's just go straight to AMC and just offer it to them because AMC is looking for whatever they can do to to get people in theaters. As a AMC stock shareholder, uh, it's like you want to get people in the movie theaters. And they're just like, yeah, we'll... Like the deal is like Taylor Taylor's camp and her get 57% of the profits mm-hmm. and AMC gets 43% of the profits. And literally within 24 hours... Every studio is looking so dumb when Taylor Swift's $20 million movie uh, has already made its money back in, in a way based off of um, yeah ticket sales. Like it was it, it outsold, was it Spider-Man No Way Home by $9 million for opening day ticket sales? That's insane. Like it, you're, look, you're looking at possibly, everyone's kind of comparing it now like to Barbie levels of anticipation and possibly box <laughs> office gross, which is insane. Like yeah. it's it, in in her first weekend, maybe even in her first day, she's gonna outgross every single concert film. Imagine the AMC. I know, I mean, I know my AMC, and I, I think they've been doing a lot of. Um, well, I think a lot of theaters now have been doing this kind of remodel to have like bars. You know, we we've talked about yeah. it way yeah. back in the day when we talked more about the industry on this podcast. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot more of them are, have been reforming to have like bars. Just imagine the concession sales because people are going and they yeah. want to like act like it's a concert. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not just AMC doing it. Like I saw mm-hmm. Landmark is, is, is going to be showcase, showing it. Um, several other theater chains are going to be showing it. So like you're looking at like, I'm not saying Taylor Swift's going to save the, the, the theatrical business, <laughs> but there's a possibility she's one of the big factors at She's play. our new Tom Cruise. Yeah, she's this year's Tom Cruise. Well, I mean, it's like, in terms of like with the strikes and everyone's like, I mean, literally when they announced it, the Exorcist pushed its date back mm-hmm. immediately. Well, did you see Jason Blum's tweet? No, what did he say? He like he tweeted out that they were moving the release date and wrote like, "Look what you made me do." Uh, that's, and- that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. Um, but I know when 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 she was on when she was on tour, my TikTok feed was just full of Taylor Swift stuff. You know what it felt like? It felt like every day was repeating. And that's going to go to our today's movie. Hey, all right. <laughs> that was the terrible segue, but I had to try something there. Um, with Groundhog Day, before we do that, my name is Brandon Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And it's the Nation Podcast. And we're in a new month, and we're talking about a new topic. And the topic this month, Thomas, it was a topic you picked. And what is this this month's topic? We're calling it genre. Uh, stuck in a small town. It's a... It's a subgenre that I, I personally really have always really enjoyed that I, yeah. I'd like to say it's a subgenre of like the fish out of water yeah, uh, genre, which is, you know, a much bigger genre. But it's specifically one in which kind of an outsider ends up st- stuck in a small community for, for one reason or another and um, and goes, you know, on, on a personal journey. I don't know. We'll see. We're going to yeah. find out. We're going to figure out the, the tropes of this subgenre as, as we dive into it. Yeah. And it's one with this genre. It's 
one that's again it's 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 a it's a type of storytelling that can be used for multiple genres is the mm. thing it can be comedy it can be uh romance it could be horror i think even i think in the mm-hmm. mathematics is an example of that um it could be uh crime drama it could be a lot of different things and i think this it could be a western even mm-hmm. and this month we're gonna be kind of discussing how even though all these genres are so different uh they can be turned into like they can be they, this they can use this kind of template as a way to tell a story um because i know one example you kind of the the quintessential example which is funny because it's one that's probably one of the lesser known movies of this genre is doc hollywood and i just yes. want to shout out michael j fox because mm-hmm. it is kind of the it's like movies kind of copied that after Doc Hollywood came out. If it yep. was Tu Wong Fu or if it's Cars is the big example. Of mm-hmm. The simplest fact is someone's car breaks down and you're stuck in this place for yeah. X so amount the, of days. The thing, and we, we normally save this for the movies, but the kind of my history with this genre is the thing that really like drove me to the, the that really attracted me to this genre was when I was a kid. Um, my parents really loved this show called Northern Exposure. Have mm-hmm. you ever... Yeah, I've, heard of it. I've never seen it, but I know when it. the when that was, I I just remember when like DVDs became a thing, mm-hmm. um, and they start being like you could because like some people had like I remember a friend of mine had like the Friends first couple seasons of Friends on VHS, and it was like yeah, it was like five VHSs to get like a season, and and I remember when DVD came out, they were like you can get a whole season of TV on one DVD, mm-hmm. um, and and that was like a huge market was was this idea yeah. like you can own this entire series that you used to love. And, and that was like the first one when, when that started happening, my mom was like, Oh, we got to get Northern exposure. That was like my favorite show. Mm-hmm. So, um, we, we bought it all. And it's in that one, it's about a, um, <clears throat> a doctor, a newly graduated medical student from New mm-hmm. York who had signed up for this program where like a small town will pay for your medical school, mm-hmm. but then you have to come be the doctor in residency for several years and he gets matched up with this like tiny town in Alaska. And so he's the whole thing is like, he's all born and lit born and raised like New York his entire life. And, um, just kind of dropped in this little town in Alaska and is just immediately like wrapped up in all the drama of this small town where like everybody, everybody's family has been there for hundreds of years kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I watched a lot of that when I was a kid, and, and I just always really enjoyed that genre. And then, you know, started exploring movies and saw uh, Doc Hollywood and saw, you know, kind of other stuff. And I was like, oh, this is this is really fun. And people find a way to play with it. So Doc Hollywood takes place in South Carolina. But not Does it South really? Carolina. Yeah, it takes place in Grady, South Carolina. I was just reading. Hmm. Uh, he's, he completed his medical residency in Washington, D.C. And he's driving to Beverly Hills for a job interview to be a plastic surgeon. And he winds up uh, in Grady, South Carolina, but it was filmed in Florida. Ah. It was. So. Actually, yeah, I, I saw somebody recently had like gone to that town and like explored like what they still had from the yeah. movie left there. Yeah. We'll definitely be speaking about towns in a, mm-hmm. in this episode uh, with, in terms of the, like what, what the, the movies do for these specific towns. But today's movie with this genre, I kind of kind of kind of text you like, hey, which 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 we do, and I think it's always going to kind of start off with kind of the the one of the more popular movies within the genre to kind of give you a good established kind of a good foundation for you listeners of what this genre is like. 
And today's movie is Groundhog Day, uh, released in 1993, directed by Harold Ramis, written by Danny Rubin, and Harold Ramis as well as a co-writer, produced by Trevor Albert and Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray as Phil Connors, a cynical TV weatherman who covers the annual Groundhog Day event in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and he soon is trapped in a time loop, forcing him to relive <laughs> February 2nd over and over again. And then we also stars Andy McDowell as his producer, uh, Rita, uh, Chris Elliott as his cameraman, uh, Larry, Stephen Tobolowski as Ned Ryerson, an insurance salesman, and then Brian Dole Murray as Buster Green, who's kind of the master of ceremonies of the Groundhog Day festivities and also, in real life, Bill Murray's brother. So, Thomas... I know you're a big Bill Murray fan. Mm-hmm. What is your history with Groundhog Day? This was one that wasn't on like quite as tight a rotation for my household as, as some of his other movies, just because we mm-hmm. didn't, for a long time, we didn't own this one. Um, but it was kind of like anytime it was on TV, you watched it. Like, so I, I definitely have seen it a dozen times at least, but it's not like, like we had Caddyshack on DVD. We had What About Bob on DVD. <laughs> um and, and this was and Ghostbusters and whatnot. And this one we didn't have on DVD. So it's it's not like I'm not as completely familiar with it as I am with some of his other stuff. But but mm-hmm. definitely always really enjoyed it. And yeah, anytime you were T, I feel like TPS had this on all the time. And it was just always that kind of movie. They're like, oh, Groundhog Day's on. Guess I'm just going to start watching from here. Yeah, this is one again that I we talked about this thing with with was it last week. When we were talking about like movies that you just hopped on. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, said, I, I admitted I've never seen Forrest Gump from the first frame. Yeah, yeah, we'll keep bringing that up. Um, we'll do that one month or something. No, um, but Groundhog Day is one that I just remember you'd I'd hop into because it's one that was like I feel like always on cable, mm-hmm. and it's one because it's so it's just like well, the same the same thing. You just turn on the TV and Groundhog Day is on over and over again. It's are you in the very comedic part or are you in the dramatic part of the movie is the thing. Um, but you can kind of hop in. It, it's well, the thing is, it's a it's a well structured movie, and that was the one thing when Harold Ramis came involved later that he really did was like to create a three act structure around it. And it is very much like sequenced very mm-hmm. well. Um, the timing of it, like I think right when he kind of goes into like his, um, like the hour mark is when I think he begins to kind of switch and be like, why am I here in this place? Let me mm-hmm. get the groundhog. It's a very, I, I think he, he admits to like, he finally figures out what's happening and like has the first conversation with Rita in the diner around 30 minutes. So it's a very like mm-hmm. well paced, well timed movie. Um, but you can really just cop in in those moments and just know where you're at. This is one talking about Forrest Gump. I never really realized he actually is in Pittsburgh at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always missed the part when they drive. I just thought he was just, it starts with him in the town uh, is what I thought for years, basically. And yeah, this is one I, I saw many times. The last time I saw it, I don't know if you remember the last time you saw it because we watched it together at the beginning of covid Oh as yeah, a ne- as a Netflix watch party with yes. uh, with Anna and Will, previous Cination podcasters. Mm-hmm. I forgot. Uh, I forgot that was a thing. It was a thing, a Netflix watch party where you we would just like type and DM one another or uh, instant message one another as we we're watching Groundhog Day. Because I can't remember if one of them hadn't seen it or they just we wanted to rewatch it because this is a movie like several movies. I mean, many movies out there in the world, it can develop a whole new um, meaning where you're at in your life or where mm-hmm. people are at in their lives. And with COVID groundhog day kind of got a, uh, reappraisal again, or, or kind of back in the pop culture where everyone's like, 
they were staying at home and living the same day over and over again during the <laughs> early days of COVID. And yeah. people kept looking at this as an example of, of what their life was like. And I just remember us were yeah typing it out as we watched it. But yeah, it, it, and, and, and it was funny rewatching it this time and kind of thinking back to that time when we watched it during COVID and thinking about like, oh yeah, this was like, Every day is the same. You try to do something differently to kind of like, you develop a hobby, you do this other thing, you start <laughs> reading more, um, you make bread or whatever. Like, you're like, let me get better at this thing. And then you give it up and do something else. And then you become depressed. Like, yeah, I was like, wow, this was really how I was like early in COVID. But anyway, <laughs> but to start into kind of the history of how it got into production, the Groundhog Day story starts with Danny Rubin, who is the film's main screenwriter. Born in San Francisco, Danny attended Brown University where he graduated with a BA in biology in 1979, and then he received an MA in radio, television, and film from Northwestern University in the early 1980s. In his 20s, Ruben was living in Chicago, and he applied to be a production assistant, like an internship, at, a, at Chicago's PBS station. And hmm. after reading his application, a producer pulled him aside and told him, hey, you shouldn't be, PA, be a PA. You should be a writer because your application was so well written. So throughout <laughs> the 1980s, Ruben found himself writing industrial videos for companies. And for those who don't know, industrial videos could be anything like commercials, safety videos for companies, or really any any type of video that could be used in-house by a company. Like, you're a new employee. Here's what you do or whatever. And you know, I, would... won a, uh, I won an award one time for an industrial oh, video. Oh, did you? Yeah. I the, made these. I made this at Alabama in college. I would make some of these as well. I think it was the what is it called? I put it on my resume for a while because the name of the award sounded really impressive. It was like the prestigious. It was like the International Videographers Award or something like Ooh. that. But it was like it was for like industrial safety videos. <laughs> I yeah, don't know how yeah. they got away with calling it that. <laughs> yeah, I wrote and like edited and directed a like housing video at Alabama. Is what it was. Mm -hmm. It was like. Mm -hmm. uh, here's what you do when you when you apply for housing in alabama and all that stuff and i think i feel like we won an award for it as well uh or and i think my boss was pissed because he found out that like alabama didn't end up using the video at all in some way but like, we won <laughs> awards for it that just mm -hmm. didn't sound that sounds like our college that happened with another thing mark uh my former roommate and and great cinematographer we made like a series of videos for alabama and they didn't use any of them. And they were like really well made, but they used like the alcohol EDU videos is what it was, which every student <laughs> oh, had yeah. to watch. So yeah. th that's kind of the stuff that this, what the industrial videos were. And according to a, a Vulture interview with Ruben, he said one of his jobs, he spent two days working the front counter of the country's most, per, mo, mo, most popular McDonald's as research for writing a script to show other McDonald's workers how to shave a few seconds off their time with each customer. <laughs> so like with these video with these with these videos, he would go to these places and research like what the job was, what they were doing, what they wanted, etc. But Ruben really wanted to write movies, not industrial videos. So soon, him and his family would move from Chicago to Los Angeles, and when he, when he arrived in Los Angeles, he seemed to do something that every writer should do. I think, and he wrote down a list of his possible ideas of movies he could write. He made a list of his 10 best ideas. Number two on that list was a Hitchcockian thriller about a murder in a deaf community called Silencer. And an agent found the script, liked it, started representing Ruben, and started shopping the movie around, and it eventually sold. 
And that film would drastically be changed and turn into a movie called Hear No Evil starring Marley Matlin and not really well known today, but <laughs> it, it, it was made. And with that, he kind of started trying to like get some, he started making some headway in LA and essentially his agent said, Hey, you need to write yourself a sample. And for those who don't know what a sample is, it's a piece of writing that shows off your skills as a writer. It can show the type of genre you write, how you write characters, dialogue, etc. It's basically a production company can read it and say, hey, we can't make this movie, but we like this writer. He might be good for this other project we have. So that's kind of what a sample is. And so in 1990, Ruben was waiting for a movie to start at a theater in L.A. He had brought with him Anne Rice's book, The Vampire Lestat, that he had planned on reading that day while he was waiting. Mm -hmm. And he said before he even started reading the book, he began thinking about vampires and their ability to live forever. And according to an article he wrote in The Telegraph, he said he wondered what that would be like. What would you do for an eternity? How long would it take before it stopped being fun, interesting, or worthwhile? <laughs> how would how would an eternally long life affect a person, particularly one who seemed incapable of change within his, within his own normal life? He contemplated saying this during a war of some kind, maybe, or maybe during Richard Nixon's administration. Uh, but he <laughs> deemed he deemed a period piece too expensive. And what also he started thinking about was one of his ideas from that list of 10 ideas. And the 10th idea on that list read, a man that lives the same day over and over again. And that's the idea for Groundhog Day was born, is that he put the two ideas together. What if someone lived for eternity? What would that do mentally to them? And then what if it was the same day over and over again? Not just eternity, but the same things happening mm -hmm. again and again. When Ruben sat down to write the script, he had to figure out what day would repeat for his lead character. He opened a calendar and planned to pick the first holiday that appeared because <laughs> he wanted it to center around a holiday in hopes of getting it yearly viewings like Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, Brilliant. which which was a film that would become a model for the movie. Ruben landed on Groundhog Day, so I assume it was probably late January or so when he was beginning to write this. And he felt it was perfect because it was a holiday that American people were vaguely aware of at the time. A holiday about how a groundhog predicted the start of spring. No one really knew that. But Danny <laughs> knew of the holiday because of his years writing industrial videos. He had worked in Pennsylvania for a brief time at a phone company. And he knew of a yearly festival that celebrated the holiday in a small Pennsylvania town in that state called Punxsutawney <laughs> and Danny quickly came up with a basic idea for the character of, of Phil Connors and the film's plot. The only issue he couldn't figure out was how did the character get stuck in the time loop? Was it something magical? Was it technological? This was a big logic issue that Ruben apparently was uninterested in solving. So <laughs> he, he ignored it. He felt not knowing made the movie more relatable and human since we as individuals don't exactly know how we get stuck in our day-to-day -day lives. Because of this, he planned to start the movie after Phil had entered into the loop, allowing him not to explain how Phil got to where he was. I think at one point I read that um, books were a big key in this early version of the script where Phil knew where he was at in time based off the book pages he, he read is what it was. Hmm. Um, he read a page a day. Ruben would soon spend seven weeks sketching out the script, and during the eighth week, he would write the entire script and do it in only four days. He quickly gave the first draft to his agent, who told him it was the best screenplay he'd ever written, but he said it would not sell. So it became Ruben's sample work to get 
to get work, hopefully. He said he met over 50 producers who told him the same thing. They loved the script, but they couldn't make it. His agent would soon retire, and Ruben would be <laughs> stuck without representation. So on a whim, he sent it to CAA, Creative Artist Agency, one of the biggest kind of agencies mm -hmm. in, in Hollywood, in hopes of getting representation. And Richard Lovett, an, an agent at the company, found the script, and he told Ruben while he couldn't represent him, he would send the script to some of his producer and directing clients. And a year after Ruben finished that first draft of Groundhog Day, the script landed on the desk of Trevor Albert, a producer who was working at Harold Ramis's production company. And Albert said the script was so interesting that it was almost too interesting for mainstream audiences. <laughs> he feared it might be too much for them to comprehend, but he felt Ramis could figure out the film's issues and make it more of a broad comedy. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely, yeah. I, yeah. I, that's that's one of those things. If you were to take this script to somebody, they'd immediately be like, oh, it's it's like it's like sci-fi. Yeah. Just like, no, not really. That's it's a, it's a human comedy. When researching this, because I, I spend a lot of time this, I'm going to spend a lot of time on the script here because there's a lot of stuff that, that, that goes in developing it. It reminds me a lot of the development of The Truman Show with mm. Peter Weir and Andrew mm -hmm. Nichol, where Nichol's script was great, but it was like, too dark it, the, the logic of it didn't really work and peter weir came in and really worked with him on the script to make it better and yeah. that's essentially what's going to happen here with groundhog day harold would read the script and while he said he didn't laugh once while reading it he was completely engaged from start to finish he was captivated by the core ideas of spirituality and romance but it needed humor and he felt he could add that Ramus felt that Groundhog Day would be the revamp he was needing for his career. After co-writing such comedies as Animal House, Meatballs, and Stripes, Ramus would transition to writing and directing his films like Caddyshack and Nash Lampoon's Vacation, which he directed and John Hughes wrote. Um, and after co-writing Ghostbusters with Dan Aykroyd, Ramus was seen in the industry as one of the greatest comedic minds working today. But that would come to a screeching halt in 1986, the little film called Club Paradise. Have you heard of this film, Thomas? No. If you haven't, that's okay. <laughs> but listen to this cast. Mm -hmm. Robin Williams. Yeah, great. P Peter O'Toole. Okay. Rick Moranis. Okay. Eugene Levy. Yeah. Brian Dole Murray. Mm -hmm. uh, Twiggy, who's in Blues Brothers and the, mm -hmm. and the model and stuff like that. And singer Jimmy Cliff, the, the reggae yeah. singer. It was a movie called Club Paradise, and Club Paradise was about a group of vacationers who decide to create a luxury Jamaican rest, uh, resort from a seedy nightclub. Ramis would say he felt that it had a chance to be a hit at the box office when it came out in 1986. However, it was the fourth Caribbean-themed movie released in that year, and it was <laughs> the fourth one to fail at the box office. Oh, no. He would then co-write Caddyshack 2 and Ghostbusters Oof. 2. Two films that would not match their, the success of their predecessors, critically or commercially. While I do like Ghostbusters 2, it's not yes. Ghostbusters 1. No, um, and Caddyshack 2 is awful. I'm good on that one. That was when I watched on cable like one random time, and I was like, yeah, I'm good. I don't really have to do this again. But after reading Danny Rubin's script in 1991, Ramis felt it was kind of the, the, the turning point for him, and he arranged for the movie to be made at Columbia Pictures. But Danny had an offer from a smaller independent studio that was going to give the budget $3 million to make the movie. And Danny would have creative control over the movie while knowing the studio would want to make changes. Ruben, however, took the offer from Columbia 
feeling it had a better chance of getting made with Harold Ramis and at a studio. In Columbia, of course, right when they optioned the script, would soon want changes from Danny Rubin, and Harold Ramis would have to supervise the first rewrite. So when he first met Rubin, Ramis told him, hey, no matter what, we're not going to change the beginning of the film. He loved the idea of starting film in the time loop already. He didn't want to change it. He felt it was hip and almost European, is what Ramis said. <laughs> Nowadays, it would be called uh, independent, is what it was. Uh, he also said he liked how they didn't explain how Phil got into the time loop, and he wanted to make sure they never explained it. Mm. Ramis would work with Ruben for several weeks on the script, and for Ruben's second draft, they loosely based the structure off the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The big change that Ramus had Ruben make was the twist ending. Do you know of this ending? I did not know there was a twist ending. Wait, 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 wait. I'm vaguely. Does he? Th he thinks he gets out, but then he's like, something no, happens and he's back in. No, no, not that. Oh, okay. So Ruben's original ending, it's that he makes it to February third, and he declares his love to Rita, and she rejects him. Oh no. <laughs> causing her to enter into oh, her own yes. time loop. Yes, I did I have heard that one. Yes. Because she has to learn how to like accept love or whatever is what it was. Ramus felt the audiences that watched me would hate the ending because it didn't offer them any catharsis. It just started mm -hmm. over again. And Ramus pretty much from the beginning wanted to make this more of a romantic comedy. That was kind of his whole thing. Ruben would turn in his next draft coincidentally enough on February 2nd. 1991 and Ramus would then take that draft and start his solo rewrite is what it was. After talking with his head of development, his company, Whitney white, she told him that she felt that not showing Phil before the time loop was unfair to the audience because they didn't get to see how bad he was before everything started. Ramus said he would try it. And if he hated it, he would, he would change it back to what it was before. But of course he didn't hate it. It made sense. Now, during the development process with Ramus, several things would change during his rewrite. The script initially had a voiceover from Phil, and he would cut that out pretty much immediately. Yeah, good call. Uh, he, would, he would also cut out several characters, including Rita's boyfriend, Max. Um, he would also cut out any reference to how long this had been happening. Uh, while it wasn't exactly stated in Ruben's original version, the amount of time Phil spent in the time loop, uh, it started with him after a year and often make jokes about the amount of time he was in the loop. And during the voiceover, Phil says, I've been living in this town for 16 novels, 12 books of poetry, nine history books, 20 romance novels, the Time Life series on home improvement, and Holly <laughs> Lancaster's high school yearbook, and still nobody seems to know my name. So he changed all that. Mm -hmm. um, he would also cut a lot of Phil's good deeds later on in the movie, but he would specifically add more smugness and cynicism to Phil's character. I think Ramus said that like it was the kind of opposite where the, the sentimentality of the movie was so different than what he's usually known for as a comedian, like to be like cynicism. So he had to kind of balance the two of sentimentality and cynicism. Mm -hmm. Once Ramus finished his draft of the script, it would capture the attention of Bill Murray, someone who had worked with Ramus five times before with Meatballs, Stripes, Ghostbusters 1 and 2, and Caddyshack. But before Murray became interested... Ramus had talked with several other actors about the part, including Chevy Chase, Michael Keaton, mm -hmm. and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. 
Ramis first offered the role to Tom Hanks, but he turned it down. After seeing the finished film and seeing Murray's performance, Hanks told Ramis that he, if he played, if he had played the role, if Hanks had played the role, the audience would have been waiting for Phil to become good since Hanks had already developed a nice guy persona by then. Yeah. And they would have expected him to be a good person in the end. But with Murray, you never knew. Ramis would then offer the role Michael Keaton, but he also turned it down, feeling it was too similar to some of his earlier comedic roles. He also said he didn't actually, he didn't exactly understand the script. And he would later say he regretted not taking the role. <laughs> when Ruben, Danny Ruben, the screenwriter, found out that Murray was cast, he was disappointed because he wanted someone like Kevin Klein to play the role. Oh, he felt Murray would make it more of a broad comedy, which is what Ramis was aiming for. And Ruben was not. Well, I think that's also kind of that period in which Murray was really trying to get away from being seen as like a broad comedy guy that's, as well that's gonna come into play here. Mm. <laughs> that um, was something I, I even as a murray fan i reading that book um i read a, a few years back kind of about that snl class yeah i did not realize there was just this period of years where he like kind of disappeared and like stopped talking mm -hmm. to his comedy crew and was like i'm a real actor now yeah well like that's the whole thing of why he did ghostbusters was that mm -hmm. basically he made a deal with columbia I'll make Ghostbusters if you let me make my passion project of the Razor's Edge. Yeah, he, yeah. Like, well, and that's it, in that in that book they were talking about like basically like when Dan Aykroyd delivered the Ghostbusters script, they were like, "Okay, well, who who do you vision for this?" And he was like, "Bill Murray's the only person that can play Finkman." After, and they I were like, oh. died. "Yeah." And they were like, "Bill Murray will never do it. Like he's he's not he's not doing comedy anymore. Like yeah. like everyone was afraid to ask him because he had just pretty much like left comedy behind." Yeah. I mean, put in perspective, Razor's Edge comes out in 84, and that's when Ghostbusters comes out as well. Mm -hmm. He does an appearance in Little Shop of Horrors in 86. His next movie is not till 88 with Scrooge. So in reality, he doesn't do a leading role for four years in the 80s. And at this point with Groundhog Day, he hadn't done a movie since What About Bob in 91, is what it was. And um, basically, he was wanting to play something different. So when he came on board, uh, Murray and Ramis would immediately be at odds about the film's tone. <laughs> Ramis wanted it to be more of a romantic comedy, while Murray wanted to focus more on the philosophical elements of the premise and make it more of a, a drama. Mm -hmm. uh, Columbia Pictures would then hire Danny Rubin to give notes to Ramis's draft, and his honest and sarcastic feedback to the script led Murray to push for Rubin to be rehired to work more on the script <laughs> now while the studio liked the script they wanted to know why phil got stuck in the time loop they refused to green light the movie if they didn't include a reason on why phil gets stuck in the time loop so reuben then came up with several ideas uh that would be the reason one was a jealous lover placing a curse on phil which was the decided upon idea, by the way, uh, and a mad scientist invention malfunctioning that caused him to enter into the time. <laughs> a loop. mad scientist in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah baby. Uh, they hate the, the Ramus, Trevor Albert, like they all hate this idea, but the studio's like, yeah, do the curse one. And Ramus and co-producer Trevor Albert basically agreed to film it, but they told Ruben, we're going to put it at the end of the shooting schedule in hopes they'll be too late to film. And if we do end up having to film it, we're not going to put it in the movie. There's just no way we're putting it in the movie. 
Um, I don't know if they ever filmed it. Hopefully, they just ran out of time. Like, oh, we we forgot to shoot it mm-hmm. and did that. Um, oh no, we saved that for the last day. Oh, oh look at that! No. We're day over schedule studio. Oh, like, so, what do you guys? What do you guys want to do? <laughs> we don't really need it. Um, we'll do it in reshoots if we need it. Um, and again, tensions between Murray and Ramus would continue to build as shooting neared, basically. So Ramus sent Ruben to New York to work with Murray on the script because Murray was constantly kind of annoying Ramus. Murray was going through his first divorce uh, at this time, and he was just kind of erratic. He would call Ramus around 2 a.m. with ideas to discuss the movie. And now when Ruben went to work with Murray in New York, when Ramus would call to check in on the process, Murray would tell Ruben, say he wasn't there. He wouldn't <laughs> want to talk to the Ramus. Uh, Ruben said Murray's laid back approach to writing was frustrating and he would work with him up until a month before filming. At one point, Murray and Ruben even went to the Groundhog Day festivities in Punxsutawney (laughs) to get a better understanding of the event, but they kind of went like undercover and didn't tell him why they were there and all this stuff. Uh, In the end, Ruben said his work with Murray would turn the script closer to what he initially had written for the movie. Ramus and Ruben would then do another rewrite together, splitting up certain sections of the movie. That's when Ruben recommended cutting any references to the 1990s in hopes of capturing a timeless feeling to the movie. So any pop culture reference all went out the door. Mm -hmm. And since we spent so much time on the writing of the script, we'll talk about more of the location scouting and casting on onset life. So with that, let's move to favorite scenes, Thomas. What do you have? (laughs) Um, I mean, I, you know, this is a movie that like begs for rewatches, you know, it's, and, yeah. and so I think one of the things I love coming back to it is kind of watching all the, watching all the seeds get planted in that, in the first yes. Groundhog Day, you know, seeing Ned Ryerson come up, what's the, the puddle, like watch that yeah. next step. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. <laughs> big Steven Tobolowsky guy, but I'm sure everyone could already knew that because I'm a big uh, character actor guy so yeah come back to that um but yeah and and i think you know getting the the ridiculousness just kind of of the groundhog day mixed with bill murray's dry humor is is great because i yeah you know i, I I've, I've seen like news broadcasts of everything going on there but you, you never really know unless you've been there i guess but yeah. um but just kind of seeing it all presented and, and getting his kind of eye rolling take on it all is, is so much fun. And I, and I, I think Rita is such a great foil for him and that she's, you know, she's new and she's fresh faced to it and, and he's yeah. obviously done it for years and she's so excited about everything and he's just over it completely. Yeah. Well, she, yes, yeah, so she's his fresh face and like, you'll find out later that she's like really, she started off doing something else and has moved into this. I thought this idea of like being stuck in your life and everything, but like she's moved into this like kind of new career. Also, too, it, it it's not exactly said, but it's basically hinted at because of Annie McDowell's accent that she is also not from mm-hmm. the area, is actually from the South. And cause I think she she convinced Ramus to let her uh, to speak in her natural accent. That's <laughs> what it was. Um, at one point, he was several times he was worried about how she would pronounce certain words in her accent, feeling they would be able to be understood by the audience. Mm-hmm. I think R- ruin was one. So I changed it to spoil at one point. Um, as a Southerner who does a podcast, I am aware that we do not speak that well sometimes. And you can't understand 
I don't, we don't chew our words exactly the right way sometimes, but anyway, um, but yeah, no, I love, again, I, I, early on the stuff when they're like trying to get to, um, get the Punxsutawney when they're trying to leave. I like my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is just like when there's snow, when there's snowed in the street and he's like going to the cop, he was just like, but I am a weather man. Like it's, <laughs> it's the moisture supposed to go yeah, up It's this not way. supposed to be snowing right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I love he's on the phone. He's like, what do you mean the phone lines are down? Well, don't you have a line for like celebrities or emergencies? <laughs> Cause I'm both. I'm a celebrity in an emergency. <laughs> but like the 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 idea to like show him as like a terrible, per- a nasty person beforehand mm-hmm. is is smart to do because it is similar to kind of say Scrooged. Is that like you need to see Scrooge before he becomes better? Yeah, yeah. is the thing. Yeah, because there is a certain as if you know if we want to get into the 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 repeating of it all, there there is a certain we're you know we're rooting for him to get out of it. But if he was a completely good guy, then we wouldn't you know it, it's 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 comedic torture, and and we can yeah. take we can laugh at it because he's a bad dude and he probably yeah. deserves at least some of it. Um, yeah, and we you know we can cheer for him to get better and to learn to be a better person. Um, but yeah, we, we need to have that initial like, yeah, screw this guy. He he deserves everything that's coming to him for the first hundred years or however long he's yeah. stuck there. Yeah, I'll, I'll read the, 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 the thoughts of how long he's possibly there because there's several different. No one really knows the exact date, but it's mm-hmm. it's been it's been a while. Um, Yeah, but yeah, I love I think I, I, sometimes they put them together of which one's which when he's just like and then the little groundhog comes out and he does a little, little nose and. Oh, what's there gonna be? It's another spring, and he's just like kind of like <laughs> mouthing. He's just kind of like, yeah, he's so upset. But yeah, but I love again the first this the first day when he wakes up and he's just like somewhat confused by what's happening, and he's just like, "You guys playing the same tape from yesterday, guy? Are you, are you guys playing the same tape from mm-hmm. yesterday when Sonny and Cher and everything?" And then and then gets mad at the guy like a little I think calls like pork belly or something when he mm-hmm. walks out. Um and he's like it, it is just happened it happens just once a year right not twice <laughs> a year um and talking about the idea of setting up stuff earlier the movie does a great job of that there's that same when she walks out he's like what's today to the lady it's like mm-hmm. it's groundhog day of course and that ends up being his piano teacher later on in the mm-hmm. movie is the thing yeah yeah that's uh, that's uh, what i love too is 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 the way that and this this will definitely get us into kind of the subgenre of the month but the way these people are planted and 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 yeah. that he can interact with some of them and especially once you start to think about kind of the grand scale of like how long he's there he's like all right yeah. well there's a period of his life where he spends all his time with like this person and then you get you know the with later on with like the michael shannon uh couple it's just like yeah. we haven't even seen him spending any time with them but he's obviously become like best friends with them um, yeah and, and so yeah i, I do love that's one of the pleasures of rewatching it is, is noticing the people earlier on that he's going to become friends with down the line. Like Felix, who he steals money from early. He ends up mm-hmm. like fixing his back later on is the thing <laughs> or, and even how Brian Dol- Dol- Murray, his brother keeps kind of popping up of like different, like mm-hmm. then, and, and it's like, and now there's certain things like, um, that even I might catch some of like, like references to like what he does in the end. Like I know one, they say, is that when he's in the hospital for the old homeless man and the backgrounds, the the kid who like broke his leg or arm that fell out of the tree, mm-hmm. he's like in the background of the scene. Like I said, Michael Shannon is 
and his wife or, or, or future wife, his fiance, are constantly in the cafe that day, mm-hmm. like having discussions or whatever. Um, or uh, Rick Ducamon's Duc- character, uh, the the his bowler character, the the navy guy, mm-hmm. like he's uh, Gus is always kind of there uh, in the background as well. And yeah, you really just it, it starts to develop more and more, and you're essentially kind of watching Phil learn the lay of the land is the thing mm-hmm. and i love as he kind of starts doing that when he learns that he can do whatever he wants and it's the bowling scene when he's asking gus and ralph like what would you do if you had like like no day like this is your last day on earth basically what would you do and mm-hmm. he kind of keeps asking everyone that these kind of ethical questions what would you do what would, like what would you want to do your last day and it's like and they're like, oh, yeah, I would just, uh, no consequences. I could, I could eat whatever I want, do whatever I want. And he was just like, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> and then you have the big, like, uh, basically drunk driving sequence. He's like, oh, yeah, don't drive on the railroad tracks. So, like, things he learned. And Rick DeCummins like, hey, Phil, I kind of agree with that one. What are we doing here? <laughs> um, but, and then, like, and then when Bill Murray wakes up the next day, just like, like realize that's the moment he realizes that yep i can do whatever i want mm-hmm. and i can just have fun with it and, that, and that's where it's like the idea of like what are you doing in a situation first it's like kind of like denial um and then you're you're start going like oh let me have fun with it let me do this let me hook up with all these women uh i think at one point in the earlier draft like earlier drafts there was more like sexual escapades for mm. phil where he was you have it twice i think here but like he was hooking up with more women and like basically going through a lot of the single women in town is what it was um and uh, they cut all that but because then you i think really hate him by the end mm-hmm. when he tries to like be with rita is the thing mm-hmm. and then that's the scene I, that, that sequence of him trying to get with rita the first time mm-hmm. is the thing yeah yeah that's that is something i really love about the structure of this one is you do kind of get that that it, it does feel cheap the first time and he gets and he yeah. gets rejected and and then he yeah i i the the way it's split up in into like you say i guess the the stages of grief and then you get the kind of depression period yeah. with the with all the suicides um and then the like self-betterment um which yeah. is probably my favorite segment of it but um mm-hmm. the the depression the the suicidal part is is very fun uh specifically for the the groundhog going off the cliff which i think is probably the most iconic uh part of it but um but yeah and then but yeah i personally for me the kind of self-betterment section is is my favorite um Mm -hmm. just because i absolutely love when they show up to the the party and he's just like jamming on the keys um (laughs) which he was actually playing by the way he was actually playing apparently yeah he doesn't know how he he learned he learned how to play just that that section apparently i read i don't know how true it is but he read and i I just love the idea that he's gotten he's gotten his like perfect day so down pat that he once even even once he kind of starts endearing himself to Rita like he's still like you know he's he's he goes to the piano lesson she's like oh he's the best student I've ever had like he he's getting the tickets for Michael Shannon like like every that WrestleMania tickets baby yeah the scene at that party when everyone's coming up to Rita and like talking about what a good person he is it's it's kind of easy to forget that because you've seen him build his way up to this it's yeah. kind of easy to forget that he's now to a point where he has to do this every he has to do all these good things every yeah. day but it's almost like second nature to him at this point like yeah. um 
Yeah, running at the kid when he like looks at the time, looks like oh shit, and like starts yeah. running to get the kid. He's yeah. Like, what, what what do you say? What do you say? You never <laughs> thank me, you brat. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow, maybe. No, yeah, it, it, it well it, it's because it's the idea of talking about just like I guess like how we should be with certain things and talk about relationships. It's like sometimes you have to work on yourself and love yourself before you can be with someone else. Is kind of the idea mm -hmm. is that by the end. He's not really focused on getting Rita is the thing. Right. But because he's become a better person overall, he's now become a more attractive and more interesting individual for, for Rita is the thing. Yeah. Is that now the jump has happened where it doesn't seem fake because before it was, he, he was kind of, he was basically gaslighting her and the other sections mm -hmm. where he was just, he was trying to have sex. That was the whole thing is that get her yeah. to my room have sex and he's like making his checklist like he's like oh yeah white chocolate no or whatever like <laughs> white chocolate fudge no and mm -hmm. and like it, it's now at the end it's just like you said he's having fun he's enjoying the day he's helping people because he wants to and i think the moment that leads to that which i think is one of the best moments in the movie sequences in the movie and also i think the sequence that opens up bill murray for the rest of his career is the homeless man sequence. Mm, yes. Because that's where you see Murray as a dramatic actor really come into play. Mm -hmm. And it's also the sequence where this time watching it, I think I'd read the part about the grief before reading it, before watching it this time was the idea of acceptance because that's, that's literally what happens is once, once the homeless man dies and, he kind of realizes he has to accept what's coming every day. Then the next thing is the self betterment section where he self improvement section where he's like, it's the next day and he's doing everything better now. And mm -hmm. so there's no like, there's no like gap in between. There's no, there's no, uh, leaning up to that big section. It's just like homeless man dies. He's tried it several times to save him and he realizes he can't. Mm -hmm. And in a situation he's kind of, he's kind of learning. This is me every day. I have to, ex I can't change everything. I can't save everyone. I have to do the best I can every day and accept what's coming to me. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a it's like a sad moment because it's like again talking about the idea of setting stuff up is that early on when you first see the homeless man, it's very early on in the movie when he, see, when he meets Ned and it's him like checking his like oh like pretending he doesn't he doesn't have any money um, to get the homeless man. But yeah, it's like it's so sad when he's like uh, sees him like okay I'll help you. Then he goes to the hospital and. Uh, he's like, let me see his chart and after he's died and the nurse mm -hmm. is like so you can't save like every or some people just die he's like not today they don't <laughs> and then he just and it's his whole journey is i gotta save this man every day mm -hmm. and then he realizes that he, he just can't do it and, yeah and then like you said acceptance like he realizes that like you know he has thought of this as his little like universe like he controls yeah. everything in this town yeah and in this day and he has to realize that there's some things that are beyond his control yeah is, I mean, it's again, it goes back to the idea of like, I, I am a God. I'm not the God, but I am a God. And he's learned so much about all these people and cared so much about all of them. It's like, let me initially, it's just kind of like a thing that he's learned, but then he starts to use it to like help them out and to not better himself, but also better them in some way. If it's mm -hmm. as simple as changing a tire or making sure his uh the master of ceremonies doesn't choke on pork chop or whatever <laughs> like it, it, it's about making uh, life better for everyone else but yeah it, it's 
there's so many great stuff where you, you see the cynicism and sarcastic nature of Murray throughout if it's the jeopardy scene or if it's when he's really going crazy and he's just like uh you're hypocrites oh yeah <laughs> when he's at the doing his like one of his um anchor spots and then yeah it's 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 killing it's it's killing himself over and over again um to get out of it i mean it, a lot of great moments in this but yeah um yeah, the the toaster grabbing the toaster from the continental breakfast just quietly <laughs> just grabbing it and walking upstairs and then he's like, I've been shot, killed, hung. Like I've been, done, I've done all these things, and it doesn't bring me happiness. It doesn't bring me anything. <laughs> Nothing changes. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to bring up when in this section? No, I, I like I, I do think a lot. Of the I think the only thing we haven't really hit on is kind of the the actual when it does turn into a romantic comedy. Um, yeah, which those 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 scenes are really nice. I yeah. uh, we can talk about this later. I think you and I have talked about it before. I don't love andy mcdowell as an actor <laughs> I, know. I know i know love her as a person i'm sure she's great but mm-hmm. uh she, she's she's good in this she's she's i but, i think but, i think this is one of, this is one of her better roles yes. is the yeah. thing um but but it's all very charming you know the yeah. the the stuff with them together and 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 staying up uh in the bed and, and yes. all that it, it, it does turn into a very nice romantic comedy after you've spent an hour watching him kill himself over and over and over again and yeah like i said it, it's it's the like i am the god thing afterwards when she's like it, it is a very cute and charming moment when she's like waiting up for him at midnight mm-hmm. and then like she falls asleep and talking about the idea of his divorce i think i read that like the idea that he uh when she falls asleep in bed and he start he kept reading before mm-hmm. he fell asleep i think murray said that that was an idea that or that's what happened to him on his wedding night with his wife was that she fell asleep because she was so tired, and so he just stayed in bed and read until he fell asleep, and that's a I think a very personal moment that he puts in a movie when he's going through a divorce from that same <laughs> wife yeah. is the thing, um, but yeah I I do love their moments when you're, you're like when you're where when you went from like you don't want this guy to get with her mm-hmm. to that scene where you're like oh man like you feel for him when he wakes up the next day and she's not there mm-hmm. and that's when it's just like damn it um but yeah and and, and uh i read that they initially for like that character they were looking at like female comedians but they were worried that they would try to like outshine bill murray and kind of like really go over the top more mm-hmm. and that's they went with mcdowell because she was a more like straight like shooter and kind of this more uh like could, could not be the she not, could, could be a different a foil for his character as you talked about yeah. earlier but yeah. not like and, trying and to was, outdo was the, more the of joke. like a was more of like a rom-com person exactly you know? exactly moving on to onset life so principal photography began on march 16th 1992 and it was not in punxatani during the pre-production process the team looked at the city but it but because it was 80 miles away from the closest city which was pittsburgh uh, it'd be tough to hold the entire cast and crew there. Mm-hmm. You pr- you probably understand this in terms of yeah. just like booking. It's like booking all that in a small town would be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also felt the city didn't have enough ideal locations for what they had in the script. Ramus was looking for a quintessential American town that didn't represent a specific town, but could represent any town. Ramus wanted a town with a main street similar to It's a Wonderful Life with that long street with all the businesses. So, location scout Bob Hudgens 
began searching for a location that would that would match what Ramus wanted. He wandered upon Baraboo, Wisconsin, which happened to have a town square. And Ramus thought a town square might be a better fit for a film for the film than a main street. So he asked Hudgens if he could find a town with a square that was close to Chicago, which was Ramus's hometown, and also a bigger city for filming. Uh, after looking at over 60 towns, they decided on Woodstock, Illinois, a town of about 25,000 residences, residents, and about 45 miles outside of Chicago, making it one of the city's outermost suburbs, basically, is what it was. Um, Bob Hudgens knew the town because it was used for a few scenes during Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, a film that he had worked hmm. on. Uh, Ramus and producer Trevor Albert would visit the town, and once they, I think, stood atop the opera house there, they realized this was kind of the perfect town. And the opera, the famous opera house in town, is actually the Pennsylvanian Hotel that Andy McDowell stays at. It's the same, so oh, it's not actually a, okay. a hotel in the movie or in real life. And while I decided to film there, not all the locals were happy with a Hollywood production. Hollywood production coming into their happy town. <laughs> uh, several businesses banded together to try and stop the filming. Uh, even the city council was somewhat split on the decision of having a big movie coming in. Uh, basically, the business were afraid that it was going to hurt their business, their profits, when a film was there kind of taking up all the space. Mm-hmm. So it ended up being 14 businesses that tried to stop the filming, but they didn't succeed. Uh, three of them would eventually sue Columbia Pictures for a loss of profits due to the production. One of them would settle out of court, while the other two outcomes are unknown. When the production started in March, the weather was still considerably cold, and it continued for the majority of the production, apparently into May is what they said. Murray said that it was often 20 degrees and nothing higher than that, and that being outside 12 hours a day left his skin feeling raw and made him irritable. Actor Stephen Tobolowski said it was a type of cold that came up from the ground and made your entire body shake. He said everyone would have to loosen their lips and shake in place to warm up before every take because the cold made it so hard for them to get their lines out. There's so many bloopers of like Murray talking and then he's just like, God almighty, because he can't get the words <laughs> out the way it needs to be. And speaking of Murray being irritable on set, to no surprise, tensions between <laughs> Ramus and Murray would continue to rise. As it was in pre-production, while Ramus was pushing for a romantic comedy, Murray kept wanting to focus on the philosophical elements and the personal choices of the character. Now, I don't know if it was due to the cold weather or his ongoing divorce, but he was just reportedly miserable throughout the filming and was, according to Ramus, rarely late to set, threw tantrums, and contradicted most of Ramus's decisions or a lot of certain Ramus's decisions. Or maybe uh, it's like uh, maybe it's like Tom Hardy last week with the uh yeah he was he was just being method yeah maybe maybe <laughs> uh ramus said that murray was irrationally mean and unavailable one small example of this happened to the young actor by the name of michael shannon <laughs> uh shannon was only there for a per- portion of the short a shoot mainly towards the end because he had to be there during all the cafe scenes and the final scene uh the main the main final party uh, but he said one day Bill Murray or he said that Bill Murray would constantly walk around with a boom box playing music. And one day Murray was playing a talking heads album and Shannon who loved the talking heads was ecstatic to hear that Bill Murray loved his, or liked his favorite band. So like any young kid, he goes up to Mr. Murray and was like, Hey, Mr. Murray, do you like the talking heads? 
And he said once he said that question, he realized how stupid it sounded. And Bill Murray looked at him like something was wrong with him and said, yeah, I like the talking heads. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> um, not long after, Ramis took Michael Shannon to lunch and later played pool with them. And Michael confided in to Harold about that situation. And Ramis said, don't worry about it. That's just Bill. Like, it's okay. And not long after, during one of the cafe scenes, uh, during rehearsal, during rehearsals for it, Harold came up to Shannon and was like, hey, Michael, Bill has something to say to you. And then Murray apologized, saying, I like you, Mike. I'm not upset with you. I'm sorry <laughs> if you thought I was. And Shannon said he turned beat red because it was being done in front of everyone. He said he compared it to like, he compared it to like telling a friend that you like someone. And then mm -hmm. someone else says like, oh, I hear you like this person. Like it was a private conversation. Mm -hmm. that was made public. So while it seems Ramus and Murray were at odds, they were at least speaking on set. It seems like uh, when the rest of the cast look back, looks back on the movie, they didn't notice the unusual tension between Harold Ramus and Bill Murray. Chris Elliott said he wasn't aware of it and said no one on set he talked to knew about it, which is odd because most people talk on set about things like that. If there's tensions, mm -hmm. He said Bill would make snide comments, but they were funny, so no one thought about it. Tobolowski said he was aware there was tension, but he said that isn't unusual on a movie set. There's always tension, because that's usually what makes it better. Andy McDowell said that it was if there was something going on, she was completely unaware of it as well. She said it was always very pleasant. Producer Trevor Albert believed that it was due to a, a variety of elements. It was the weather. It was Murray's personal life, but mainly it was just the creative differences that Ramus and Murray were having. He said Bill had to play a nonlinear, complex progression of a character, and it wasn't easy. He had a lot of pressure, and Ramus had a lot of pressure as well. A lot of the time, Murray would just tell Ramus to tell him if he was playing good Phil or bad Phil in the scene <laughs> to make it easier for him. One of the more famous stories from the set was when Bill Murray filmed his scenes with the actual groundhog named Scooter. A few months before filming, they hired an animal wrangler who bred a groundhog for the film, and that would be Scooter. Uh, during the driving scene when Scooter was being, or during the driving scene, Scooter was becoming agitated by the long hours of filming. So in the movie, you can see him getting angry, and he starts to climb on the steering wheel when Murray says, don't drive angry, don't drive angry. And <laughs> Ramis said, not even a second after the shot ends, Scooter turned around and bit Murray's hand hard, breaking through his thick leather gloves and hitting his skin. Needless to say, that was a wrap on the day. <laughs> there were rumors that Murray had to get a rabies shot or whatever. I don't know how true that is. Uh, even Trevor Albert has said lately that that was just a made up story, but I've seen so many different story or other articles, the contrary saying it was a real thing. Murray <laughs> has said it. Ramis said it, but yeah. But one of the big difficulties on set besides the weather was matching the lighting for every exterior shot because it's the same day mm -hmm. over and over again. And there were big discussions early on on what type of what type of day it should be. Was it sunny? Was it cloudy? Was it gray? So in order to help with this, they they picked, I think, kind of a gray kind of cloudy day. Uh, and they tend to shoot multiple scenes at the same location back to back. As an example of this, when Phil meets Ned Ryerson on the corner, they shot that scene just back to back to back, not moving locations. And Tobolowski, a separate story with that day, Tobolowski recounts, uh, recalls that on that day, Murray bought the entire town Danishes 
because they were all out watching the film. So he had like 500 danishes that him and Tobolowski went around and gave out to all the, the townspeople that were there watching the filming. Speaking of Tobolowski, on his casting, he based his performance of Ned off his own insurance agent, apparently. <laughs> when he auditioned for the role, he came in and played it over the top, hoping that would help him stand out. And Ramis and producer Trevor Albert felt the part was written for Tobolowski once they saw him audition. They also wanted to bring Tobolowski back for one more scene, so they added him last minute to the final party scene. And apparently Tobolowski wrote most of his own dialogue naming all these different types of random insurance plans mm-hmm. they could have. Um, he also, I think Ted Lasso, that like even the script was changing constantly during the movie. Uh, Murray would ad lib, of course, like he ad libbed the like last line of like, we'll rent first or whatever. Mm-hmm. When they're talking about that. Um, after the film came out, Ted Lasso said that his insurance agent contacted him and thanked him for honestly portraying insurance agents <laughs> and not, and not making fun of them. One of the biggest debates on set was the ending of the movie when Phil wakes up and Groundhog Day was over. There was debate on whether or not Phil uh, Phil should be wearing the same clothes that he had the night before. Should he be in the same clothes from the night before or should he be naked or in different clothes showing that Phil and Rita had sex the night before? Ramis polled the entire crew on the day and it came to a tie. It was apparently a young female crew member that broke the tie saying... If he was in the same clothes the night before, or, or saying he should be in the same clothes the night before because anything else would ruin the movie. Mm. Filming would finally wrap on June, t- uh, June 10th, lasting 86 days, with the weather finally getting warm and reaching into the 80s. They actually had to use fake snow for several scenes by the end of the shoot. And with the end of production, let's move into the aftermath of Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day premiere on Groundhog Day. February 4th, not the second. Uh, February 4th, 1993 at the Fox Theater in Westwood. Murray you didn't... You can't take the spotlight away from Bucks of Tawny Phil, you know? I know, right? Uh, Murray did not attend the premiere of the movie, <laughs> but Rodney Dangerfield did, as did Catherine O'Hara, Mimi Rogers, and Virginia Madsen. Oh, uh, wow. $40,000 $40, of the ticket sales would go to charity. Uh, a second premiere would happen in Crystal Lake, Illinois, near the near where the movie was filmed uh, oh, nice. at Woodstock. They would auction off props and signed equipment with all the proceeds going to the Woodstock School District. The movie would hit theaters on President's Day weekend, <laughs> February 12th, 1993, 10 days after Groundhog Day. Uh, the film would gross $14.6 million over the four-day weekend, finishing number one at the box office and making it the second biggest opening for a film released in the winter behind Wayne's World's $18 million. What a wild number to think about in our current <laughs> state of movies is that $18 million was the biggest opening for the entire season of winter. <laughs> it would gross a total of $100 million worldwide against a $30 million budget, making it a modest success. Yeah. Not a big one, but a modest success. The same can be said for the film's critical success. Most critics liked it, but not all loved it, and most really didn't love it. It was good, one great. Ebert gave it three stars, comparing it to Murray, Murray's earlier film, Scrooged, but he said it wasn't as grim, saying it was a comedy on the surface with a thoughtful drama beneath it. Many say there was a change in tone from previous collaborations between Murray and Ramis. A lot of critics commented on the film's morality tale, but many felt it was too Hollywood 
for the questions that were being asked in the script, something the film's original writer, Danny Rubin, also felt. He was afraid that would happen. Mm -hmm. uh, Owen Gleiberman compared it to compared it to Back to the Future, but saying it was basically an unfavorable comparison, saying it felt like a bunch of sketches thrown together uh, to make a movie about morals, essentially. Hmm. But other critics found that it, other critics also found that it wasn't funny, is what they said. And with all that, they still liked Murray McDowell, and also many praised Stephen Tobolowsky's work on the movie, with Ned becoming kind of a big part of the film. <laughs> uh, and with that, the the filmmakers thought they did a decent job at making a comedy. Like it was modest critically and financially, we it was good in, in, in the Hollywood business. But Ramis. Harold Ramis and screenwriter Danny Rubin would soon begin receiving a lot of letters and calls about the film from a variety of people. Ramis said he would get messages from Jewish people, psychiatrists, Christians, the yoga community, <laughs> and many others. So set up for a joke? Yeah. Claiming, <laughs> that the, claiming that the film represented their value system. Mm -hmm. Ramis and Rubin said they would constantly get letters for decades, with Rubin saying he still gets them from like a German pre or a priest in germany talking about how groundhog day represents his beliefs or a buddha a buddhist somewhere saying that represents their beliefs mm -hmm. it became this universal thing ramus said he could walk into any church synagogue or psychiatrist office and be accepted just like he could go into any golf course and someone would buy him a drink because he wrote caddyshack and directed it now after the movie the big kind of story is that Ramus and Murray would essentially, it would cause a rift between them mm -hmm. after so many movies together, they stopped talking apparently between 1993 and almost 2014 Murray and Ramus spoke only three times. And it was like at a funeral and at like a bar mitzvah for someone. And essentially they had stopped being friends. Some people didn't really know why um, they, Ramus always kind of spoke highly of Murray uh, for the most part in public. But I think one person that, that, that Murray almost felt that uh, Ramus took too much credit for like creating the Bill Murray persona. Mm -hmm. And someone said like Bill Murray owes a lot to, to Ramus for, for like kind of helping him become big in films, but Murray had zero gratitude for what he did. Um, I think Mur or uh, Ramus even offered, murray a role in his 2005 movie the ice harvest but murray would have his brother brian dull murray reject it for him and when ramus asked him why he was just like he just didn't want to do it and basically tell him that like murray never talks about harold ramus at all mm -hmm. um danny rubin was at first somewhat kind of upset by the changes in the movie and felt that like it didn't capture what he initially wanted uh, he also had moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico at, before the film even came out. And he would be, he said he would be flown out a lot after Groundhog Day to basically be pitched movies to write. And he said, everyone was kind of asking me to write Groundhog Day again, is what it was. Mm -hmm. He goes, just write something normal and it'll come out all Danny Rubin-y. It'll be great. <laughs> um, he's like, they want me to meet for lunch and they they tell me I was a funny guy and they tell me i want to do this move they want to do this movie and he goes i lay out this like studio movie with a three-act structure and conventional conclusion and then i would say under no circumstances am i going to write that movie <laughs> and he said it took me years to understand that's why business started to disappear for him and so that i think groundhog day is his last credited screenplay 
is the thing. He would write scripts for years and sell them, but just none of them got made. And it was because he didn't really want to write the Hollywood way. Mm -hmm. Uh, After a while, he would come around to Groundhog Day and realize, he goes, look, it's the main thing on my, my, uh, like resume. And he goes, it's there. There are worse movies to be known for than Groundhog Day. It'd be the only movie you're known for is Groundhog Day is a pretty good career. Um, and in terms of Ramis and Murray, they would finally reconcile towards the end of Harold Ramis's life and reports that Murray's talks openly about Harold Ramis as a good person. And even after Harold Ramis's death, he gave a shout out to him at the Academy Awards after the in memoriam section is what it was. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the reassessment of the movie, the modest film became a pretty big movie in the 1990s uh in 93 almost immediately afterwards william goldman famous writer william goldman said Mm -hmm. i think groundhog day is the one that will be remembered all the movies that came out this year it's the one that we remember 10 years from now several directors came out speaking how it was great they also that, that it laid the groundwork for future fantasy comedies like the truman show and liar liar and groundhog day became a common term to reference a repetitive, unpleasant uh, situation. Mm-hmm. It became a whole genre of films, basically, where now it's like it's Groundhog Day meets this. It's Groundhog Day at a wedding if it's Palm yeah. Springs. It's Groundhog Day, but an action thriller if it's source code on a train. It's Groundhog uh, Day with a slasher. Yes. It became... Ty- or it's, Edge of T- it's Groundhog Day, but a Tom Cruise movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it became... Yeah, it became a, a subgenre in itself for sure. In yeah. itself, basically, um, it was named. It was it was it was selected by the United States Library of Congress in 2006, and also in a rarity, Roger Ebert updated his review in 2005, mm. almost a decade later, giving it bumping it from a th- from three stars to a full four stars. All right, saying, saying that he underestimated the film and know that Murray's performance was essential to making the film work. Several people have called it one of the best films of the past 40 years, one of the best comedies of all time, with many comparing it to A Christmas Carol and other other films and stories of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, It also really kind of helped Columbia Pictures get out of the gutter because they were having a bunch of box office failures uh, at that moment in time. And it also, it kind of helped establish Murray as a dramatic actor in some way. A lot of people commented on that that was when it kind of made him transition to things like like rushmore lost in translation Mm -hmm. etc so it ended up having a much bigger impact than what they initially thought when it came out it just shows you how movies movies can grow and grow even decades after they're released and so with that thomas what worked about groundhog day yeah you know this is one I, i i've always kind of heard that story that it was like Ramis and Ruben and and then Murray and, and and everybody just kind of had their fingers on the script and it sounds like a nightmare. Um, yeah, yeah. This was the lo- this this is the longest section I wrote about the writing of a script. I think. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it, I think it's that rare exception where like everybody's fingerprints are apparent. Yeah. But important and yeah. and somehow manages and, and maybe that was you know that was Ruben and bringing it all together, but but it all manages to meld together into cohesively. It doesn't, it doesn't feel jumpy despite 
what critics might have said at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and I also think, you know, I think everyone, Ramus and Murray, were both kind of maturing around the same time. Like, towards the end of the 80s, the kind of, like, broad comedy was 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 tired i think and and for this to kind of introduce uh and like you said kind of pioneer the way for these kind of like high high concept comedies um i think it's it was a great for for them to sit down especially like we talked about with the initial idea for that comedy to be so out there and obviously the studios you know it's funny you were talking about the studios like wanting it to be explained it's like we said last week with mad max about like i can't believe the studios like didn't make them work something into the script where they're like all right now talk about the town that has guzzling and talk about the town that has bullets and talk about what a blood bag is like um yeah it's 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 a gamble this this idea and and now you know like we said it's it's obvious now it's like all right well i'm pitching you groundhog day meets blank and they're like done sold let's go um but it was such a gamble and and it i i think of all murray's stuff and ramus's stuff it is it has like the most heart yep. and it has the most kind of soul to it and while still being very entertaining you know like like a lot of i, yeah. I think a lot of the stuff in the second half of murray's career has a lot of soul um Mm-hmm. but but this is like it has the the laughs of a broad comedy while also having the heart of like a a, a drama or a, a, a you know a whatever calm drama or whatever they call yeah. it you know? Dra- dramedy yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah dramedy yeah um so yeah i think i think the tone works i think i think especially after murray's kind of dramatic attempt fizzling out yeah. I think for them to give him another shot at something like this, like you said, is is what kind of opened the door for him to become the like Wes Anderson, Sofia Coppola, Bill Murray that we that we know today. But I, it was it was a, it was a gamble, but it yeah, it, it all paid off. If we ever see him in the movie, a movie yeah. again, I don't know after after all the cancellations. But anyway, no, um, yeah, I agree. I th- well, I think too with Murray in terms of career choices that he was so like. I want to be seen as a dramatic actor. So it was the idea of like, I have to do a full on drama, mm-hmm. but groundhog day kind of showed him. I, at least I think it did that. Oh, I can kind of do both. Mm-hmm. It's not about going like one way fully. It's about like, how can I like work this to my advantage? How can mm-hmm. I be kind of a smug, cynical asshole, but funny, mm-hmm. but also a smug asshole. That's going through some shit is the yeah. thing. I think, you know, having read a couple books about him and kind of his career, like, I think that's what he was looking for in the, like, late 80s was he was looking for yeah. permission to be, for, like, one of his characters to be sad. Because, yeah. like, he had played, like, asshole, he had played goofball, he had played happy-go-lucky, but, like, he had never just been, like, ha- yeah, had never been allowed to be sad. And, I mean, you look at, like, every, look at the melancholy of all the characters he's played with Wes Anderson. Yeah. or sofia coppola or, it's like, like that's bro- his, bro- broken broken flowers or, or yeah. Jim that's, yeah. that's his that's really his sweet spot in the second half of yeah. his career and this movie is the one that really lets him dip into that yeah no i agree completely but in terms of other stuff i i love the idea of like like i think a lot of people i don't know a lot of people try to make it's a wonderful life if that makes sense mm-hmm. like um Maybe not at this point in time because because it's wonderful life was still so like not as 
like seen as a classic as it is today. It feels like I think it was that was on the rise up at that point. Um, mm-hmm. But that was when it was being shown so much on public television or basically just public access channels and stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think the 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 landscape of the town, like making a choice, like make it a town square, make it feel kind of Americana that you could be anywhere in the country uh, or, but also nowhere in the country in a way, if you're not used to that, that world. Um, a lot of the side characters are great. I think Chris Elliott's fun. Tobolowski mm-hmm. is great. Um, uh, Michael Shan's great for the scenes. <laughs> uh, Rick Ducommon's great as Gus or whatever. Like it's, it's a really great ensemble throughout the movie. And mm-hmm. I, I think talking about the, the, the conflict, I asked the thing is that I think sometimes when you have when you have conflict, you have tension. That's when you get diamonds. Is the thing mm-hmm. we get. We have pressure. That's what happens. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes I think. I mean, I think Richard Curtis said like sometimes it's a bad experience and you make a bad movie. Sometimes it's a good experience and you make a bad movie. It's a kind of a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. And just this time it works. Is that it's a difficult experience to write the script, but that pressure makes you take all those bad ideas that don't work and put in the good ideas and keep the good ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happens here. And yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a solid, I mean, it's, it's a really great piece um, of comedy of drama that I think, I think Ramus said, like, no matter what you can come to the movie, at a different period in your life and gain something new from it each time. It, it's, it's like how I watched it in COVID is not how I watched it yesterday is mm-hmm. the thing is that, and that's that's movies in general. So that's movies in general. Is that movies are frozen in time. The person who's watching is the one who's changing, and mm-hmm. that's in turn changing their view of the actual movie. So that's what worked about it. Yeah. Uh, did did anything not work about Groundhog Day? Um, like I said, I think this is probably Andy McDowell's. <laughs> I was waiting for this. This is probably Andy McDowell's like best comedic role. I think probably her best movie is is. Uh, sexualized and videotape but um and i do i love green card i don't know what it is i don't know what it is but green card's um, great green card's great uh but yeah she she does work here and 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 i i i agree that they they didn't i'm I'm glad they didn't put a comedian in here like they they needed somebody to be a foil for him and they needed somebody really really sincere and and she comes off as very sincere but yeah i would like to see a version of this movie where somebody a little bit stronger is in that mm. role fair um yeah i had i wrote down a question like does the love story fully work is what i wrote down because like it's one that like it kind of how to put this and this is not really her it almost surprises you it almost kind of comes out of nowhere which is mm-hmm. pr- maybe the purpose of it but it almost feels like he his goal of trying to have sex with her comes in like around like 45 minutes into the movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the whole movie of like how he's in love with her, but you never really have like hints of that before that, if that makes sense. And I don't know if it makes the movie better. I don't know if it's a problem with it, but I just noticed this time where I was like, Oh, he kind of just like starts wanting to get with her. And then mm-hmm. later, like, oh, I, I've fallen in love with you uh, since I first saw you. You're like, wait, I didn't get that at all. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it is it within the context of the uh, of the, you know, that he's spent 
hundreds of years getting to know all these people and, and he's identified her as the one that he's most interested in um yeah i mean i think maybe the focus of the film leans a little too hard on that in the end because it is ultimately yeah. like the journey of the film is him becoming a better person and that yeah. that yeah. opens him up for love but but you know it's not like it's not like beauty and the beast where they're like you have to make somebody love you um yes uh you know that's that's never laid out i think we all kind of come away with that being the 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 idea the lesson that he has to learn but but it's also mm -hmm. he you know we're thinking this is coming at the end of this is coming at the end of him truly redeeming himself as a person and this is like mm -hmm. the last redemption that he needs to do is is not just not make her fall in love with him necessarily but endear himself to her which is which is why i also think that them not having had sex that night is is the the right call as well because yeah you know it, it is for him it is he has spent however many years falling in love with her but this is like kind of her second or third day of really knowing him and yeah and so i i think i think it were i think it's i think it's the right amount of of subtle and that she can be you know finally kind of like intrigued by him mm -hmm. and and have a moment of like maybe i was wrong about him but not be like she's never like heads over heels yeah for him necessarily um so yeah I, I think it works i i think we because of the the regular structure of a film or like the the box that we tend to want to squeeze storytelling into i think yeah we give more weight to it than than the movie necessarily does sometimes that's fair that's fair um and but i think also with me it's like i i have never really seen this as a rom-com right is the thing I've always leaned more on Bill Murray's side, but I always saw it as like a philosophical question mm -hmm. of of what will happen if you do all this stuff, if you, if you're stuck in the situation. Yeah, I think I think the rom com version of this would be, and and you know, no, I love a I love a rom com, so no shade to rom coms, but the rom com version yeah. of this would be when he first starts trying to like woo her, like that would be it. And, yeah. and he would learn, you know, he'd learn to be a better person, like from his pursuit of her. But yeah. but yeah, the fact that he like he tries to pursue her sexually gets shut down and then he goes off on his like completely independent of her. He goes mm -hmm. off on his like, I'm going to be a better person journey. I think that's what what sets us apart. So moving on to film facts. I, I thought I'd bring this up earlier because it was an interesting thing. But it's the last time it's February 2nd and Phil Connors kisses Rita. Mm -hmm. It begins. It begins to snow, mm -hmm. and 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 if you watch it, Phil looks up, and it's almost like that's different, mm. and mm -hmm. it's foreshadowing the loop that's broken. Some say it's a reference to "It's a Wonderful Life." Oh, when it, yeah. when the snow signifies that George George Bailey's back in reality and not in like the hellscape of of Bedford Falls. Right. Um. So I found that interesting. I think you mean uh Pottersville pottersville sorry <laughs> my apologies woodstock illinois uh he wasn't born there but he considered it his hometown and that was orson wells oh apparently orson wells would uh he had been he had basically lived there for four years or so in his life and actually uh like performed at that opera house i think i read is what it was mm -hmm um with and he went yeah todd school for boys uh five-year stay there was only formal education 
Uh, years later, when I asked what he thought his hometown was, because I suppose it's Woodstock, Illinois, if it's anywhere. I went to school there for years. If I try to think of a home, it's that. Um, he later returned uh, in 1934 at the age of 19 and coordinated a whole theater festival at Woodstock Opera House, is what it was. Hmm. Um, he even shot a short film, The Hearts of Age, his first short film or, or an early <laughs> short film, actually at the Todd School is what it was. Uh, after the movie in 2007, Danny Rubin created a website that was from the perspective of Phil Connors is what it was. Hmm. And he started a blog where it featured fictional conversations between himself and Phil Connors, who had since retired to live on a mountainside near Taos, New Mexico. Okay. That's what it, that's what it was. Um, what else did I have? Oh, yeah. There were several lawsuits for this movie, by the way. Besides the businesses, uh, one writer sued the movie for plagiarism. Um, it was uh, Richard A. Luppoff, or he threatened legal action against the filmmakers, alleging the film copied a short story, 12.01 p.m., and its associated short film adaptation from 1990. Uh, it was never fully filed, um, and it just kind of never went through. Another one that, that claimed uh, plagiarism was a novel from Leon Arden called One Fine Day. And he said he unsuccessfully unsuccessfully pitched the script to Columbia Pictures about a man repeating April 15th over and over again. Um, and that was the one that actually, I think, went to court and the judge ruled against Arden is what it was. So you hmm. couldn't you couldn't copyright an idea, but you could copyright an expression of an idea mm -hmm. is what it was. Yeah. Um, what else do I have after that? Uh, oh yeah. Um, Murray later, Murray Kobolowski and his brother, Brian, uh, repri reprised their roles in a Jeep commercial s filmed in Woodstock. I, I remember it was a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah, it was Super Bowl commercial and in 2020, funny enough <laughs> in February, 2020, <laughs> um, uh, the current commercial recreates several scenes. Um, and they actually, when, when COVID-19 happened, uh, they re-edited the movie or re-edited the commercial and, and used it as like a social distancing thing as well. Uh, Murray said it was his first and last commercial. <laughs> the movie was turned into a musical in mm -hmm. 2017. Um, initially there's always been talks of a, a or people, people pretty much immediately after it came out, they ruled out a direct sequel. Um, while Ruben holds the story credit for an Italian remake of the movie, um, he had always been asked about a sequel or a, a musical, basically. And at one point, Stephen Sondheim was introduced to do it or, or was interested in doing a musical version of it. But then finally, after the success of Matilda, uh, Matthew Warchus and Tim Minchin uh, approached Ruben about doing a musical for Groundhog Day. And it was released in, or it came out in 2016. And in 2017, uh, Bill Murray went to a music or the, uh, the performance of it. And apparently it left him in tears is what it was. Mm -hmm. And this is around the time that, because Murray kind of always hated the movie. And I think he finally came around to it by the end here in the, in the late 2010s, saying it was a beautiful, powerful idea that people have, resonated with ever since we made it and now he's proud of it basically 
So yeah, and then my last thing, the amount of time spent <laughs> in this movie. So you you've been guessing thousands of years. I, I've I've said I think I said thousands and hundreds on the episode, okay. but I've, okay. I I know it's it's much more than you'd expect. I've heard people kind of crunch the numbers before, or it's less than you expect. Oh, okay. So there's several. There no one no one fully knows. Let's just be real. It's like some have said thirty years, some have said forty years. Um, one estimate, basically by breaking down all he does. It takes at least ten hours of study, ten hours of study to like kind of master a, a certain field, mm-hmm. and given the time, this one place thinks that Phil spent a, Phil spent approximately twelve thousand four hundred days, or nearly thirty four years in the time loop. Um, in Ruben's original original draft, Phil estimates that he was trapped in the time loop between seventy and eighty years because wow. the because the books that he used. Mm-hmm. Um, Ramus said. Uh, he used kind of this idea of like Buddhist doctrine because he he adopted Buddhism at this point in his life. Mm-hmm. He said that it takes approximately ten thousand years for a soul to evolve to the next level in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So he said maybe it's ten thousand years, um, but no one exactly knows how long it was. But thirty, but the twelve thousand four hundred days is the most exact that I read. Moving on to awards, Thomas. Mm-hmm. The Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress, and scenes that kills it. Uh, how, how are we dividing this up? You want to know where Stephen Tobolowsky goes. I right. do want to know where Stephen Tobolowsky goes. Is he is, is he supporting or is he of the townsfolk? He has I, the most scenes, yeah? He has the most scenes. I feel like he's in it 15 minutes or less. Would you okay. would you would you agree that he's in it 15 minutes or less? Yeah. I think right. he is. All right. We'll give it. If that being said, everyone, that means that Steven Tobolowski just knocked out the groundhog for my nomination for, <laughs> for this segment. Yes. We're anti-animal on here now is what it is. <laughs> Scooter. Scooter's great. Mm-hmm. Scooter's good. Don't drive angry. Um, no, Tobolowski, I think, is is like, I feel like any other actor, this is a forgettable role, honestly. Mm-hmm. Tobolowski just has this. He, he, he can play comedy so well he can be annoying but also he can be mean if he wants to mm-hmm. like like I, I don't know what year when was ghost of mississippi because he's in ghost of mississippi around the same time and he's like kind of despicable is yeah. the thing oh yeah that, i mean I, you know, 96 I think that's, that's i think that's the wonderful thing about like good character actors is yeah the the t- the line between like funny and and mm-hmm. like you know because he's uh is it house of lies he was in had a recurring role in house of lies with don Cheadle, yeah. and he was like a just like an outright villain like yeah that's it flat out villain nothing redeeming about him and um yeah, yeah. you see him you're like oh ned ryerson but but he can it's similar energies but he he can just switch it and be the worst yeah. um, and, and and mississippi burning not ghost of mississippi mississippi burning. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it was like 88 so yeah he and but he but just completely two sides of the coin mm-hmm. there just just really incredible um but yeah i think i think i think he takes this role and makes like like to where like he's in it for less than 15 minutes and he's like singled out as like one of the best parts about but he he becomes kind of like your uh almost like the representation of the town and like mm-hmm. him and like made brian murray are the ones who are like this is the town and doris uh the waitress mm-hmm. um 
but I think I think he's great because he's the one that just I think adds something to again that he's in the commercial in 2020 yeah. kind of says that he played he had a massive impact on the movie. All right, this one might be more difficult. The Annie Potts X Factor Award supporting actor actress as the most memorable. Uh, Chris Elliott. That's my pick as well. It's funny. I mean, Tobolowski's. It's funny. Tobolowski has a bigger impact in less moments mm-hmm. than Chris Elliott. But Chris Elliott, you kind of need that steady hand. Like yeah. one of my favorite moments is when, is when the car crashes. He's like, maybe he's okay. <laughs> and then the fire goes. Oh, never mind. Never mind. Yeah, and I, and I think that that character is really important because I think you need somebody with, like we've said, with how important it was for to for murray to have permission to not be as broad in this one i think you needed somebody to be broad yeah for this and and yeah chris elliott's great as the kind of like bumbling comedic sidekick like you you really needed somebody like that in there to i think just to give murray the room to get a little bit more soulful in it and he's a key part to he's not as say big as say Andy McDowell's character, but he's a key part in Murray's arc is that mm-hmm. like, is that Chris Elliott in this whole movie, Chris Elliott's character of Larry has known Phil the longest. Yes, exactly. So he knows he's a dick mm-hmm. and constantly talks about it. And it's that moment when Phil is like, when he brings coffee to them and he brings the Danish, he goes, he's like, Larry, we never talked. Do you have kids? <laughs> Like it's that moment when he realizes he's he's like he doesn't even know the closest guy knew, like, he doesn't know anything about the, the guy who's been around him like the past few years doesn't know anything about him is the thing right and 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 Chris Elliott is like he's he's also one that kind of like begins to realize well that was kind of odd <laughs> he's never been that way mm-hmm. I mean and also you know cabin boy i watched that movie growing up a lot i don't know why really um, I, I saw that one once I and dismissed it as like a I, fever I, dream let me take that back i don't say a lot i think it's that i saw it one time made full one time fully and it stuck with me is mm. the thing yeah so pr- probably a fever dream as well is the thing uh the gene hackman mvp award the person who carries the movie director actor writer etc that's this is a really this tough is a, one. This is a tough cause, one because I know it's it's one that, like I said, has a lot of fingerprints on it. Um, it's yeah, it's tough to it's tough to pin one of those like three. Um, yeah, because it is truly. It sounds like it's truly a a situation of Danny Rubin kind of bridging the circles between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, and yep. um. And this, I don't think, the idea, it, it's, I don't it's think it would have worked without any of the three of them in the in the weird way they all kind of work together. I agree because it's also like at least with Ramus and Murray, it's kind of a crossroads for both of them, like career wise. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that Mur- Murray ends up having kind of a very different career after this movie, and Ramus kind of does as well. Um, is the thing. So I, I, I don't know. I tend to, I weirdly tend to lean towards Murray for two reasons. A, it opens him up and it shows that he can do more than just comedy. And you could argue that's the same thing with Ramus. But I would also argue that Murray is the kind of like chaotic element of this 
that forces everything to kind of happen a certain way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like he pushes Ruben and pushes Ramus. Like it's at the end of the day, who's pushing who is the weird <laughs> thing. Is that mm-hmm. Ramus pushes Ruben in a certain way. But if you look at R- R- Murray's the only one that like pushes Ruben in the writing, but also pushes Ramus in the directing. Mm-hmm. So is he the one putting the pressure? And this could also be a negative thing in some people's eyes. And I understand that. But is he the one putting the pressure to constantly analyze what it is they're doing? Now, Ramus is like actively saying, we're making this movie, but does that pressure create the movie you get? Because if it, if not, it's just a rom-com. There's more maybe sex scenes earlier on, and it's more of, of a broad comedy. Is Murray the one that pushes Ramus to go back more to what Ruben had is the thing? So that's my argument, I guess, for Murray. <laughs> Is that he's he's kind of the 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 person who keeps pushing everything back to like make it, its stubbornness basically is what it is. Mm-hmm. And again, that is a negative thing as well. But in this case, I think it's what makes the movie end up working. Okay, yeah, I back that. Okay, I'm sorry for going down <laughs> that route. I don't know how people feel about that. But final questions. If you were remaking Groundhog Day today, which we've done, man, well, I'll ask you this. <laughs> I'll ask you this because it's Andy been done Sandberg. so many. It's been done so many times after this. Would you rather do a modern remake of this, or would you rather do a 1940s movie in the period they were trying, like they were trying to emulate It's a Wonderful Life? No, because then I just, I just do Jimmy Stewart. Um, okay, fifties. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but, yeah. Pick 50s or nowadays? I I, I, I can do... I want to do nowadays because I have okay. someone okay. very specifically okay. in mind. Um, Len Powell. No. Uh, <laughs> no. No, no, no. It's someone that, that can do like very dramatic and can also do very broad. And I don't think we've given him an opportunity to do both at the same time yet. And I, I frankly, I, I really am looking forward to a project in which he is able to. And that's, um, that's Donald Glover. Oh, interesting. Like, I think, you know, Atlanta is very like soulful and, and even when it is comedic, yeah. it's not, I would never call it like broadly comedic. Um, yeah. How he makes Atlanta with community is the question. Exactly. But you go back to community and he is so talented and just yeah. like, and, and being like sitcom talented is a, is a skill all on its own. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I would, I would love to see a, a, a movie in which he kind of gets to do both. I don't know if that, you know, he's, he is someone who has kind of gotten to blaze his own trail Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's a desire of his to do, but he is, you know, supposedly doing the community uh, movie. Yeah. So he clearly, you know, is interested in occupying both spaces. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think he I think he would like nail this. Mm-hmm. Then my my pitch for Rita is Tessa Thompson. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, she she's probably a little too talented for that, but even, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll rework it. <laughs> but we can it. we we can, yeah. we can we can we can amp it up. Is the thing yeah. is the thing. Yeah, for sure. I I think that's a, I think that's an interesting dynamic to play mm-hmm. with. Or is those two because I think they have different energies. Is the mm-hmm. thing Tessa and 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 Glover, um, but could probably play off each other very well. Yeah, is Agreed. is the thing is the thing. I like that. 
I like that. I don't know who Ned is. Dan Levy. Are we, are we going with the Shit's Creek references yeah, here? Yeah, exactly. We, we, that we is one hundred percent why. why we, I said already, we already have two in here uh, with Doris and Chris Elliott. Um, okay, okay, we'll go. We'll go with we'll go with Dan Levy. Michael Shannon. I think Miles Shannon could be Larry. Honestly. I I love broad Michael Shannon. Uh, I mean, I, I, the, I, night, I, the, I night, the night before I, I watch the, the night before every Christmas now, and it is mostly <laughs> just for for Michael Shannon. As like as like weed smoking Jesus is the guy that's like supposed he's, to be he's a guardian angel, angel but guardian yeah, angel, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? I mean, like we said, it is. It, it's kind of created a genre of its own. Um, yeah. In addition to it's being one stuck those in a small it's, town, it's stuck it's in one a those, time loop. It's one of those rare movies that does that. Yeah it's that and like the only ones i can think of uh, like in, in the modern era is like that and die hard like those are yeah. the two movies that you can just walk into a pitch and say i want to make die hard in a blank or i want to make groundhog day that's and true blank that's and true the, like um yeah i mean it's, it's it's kind of time travel you know i you can you can i would include it in a list of like time travel movies yeah um and then it, and then it is it's like a you know it's like a morality tale like you yep. said, you you said um, Christmas Carol. Like it is, it has that kind of Christmas Carol vibe to it of of a super some sort of supernatural force coming yep. together to make a bad man good. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. For some reason. Uh, yeah. I mean, fantasy, like the, the 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 broad strokes of it all: fantasy, comedy, romantic comedy. I mean, you could also like something about like suburban type movies. I don't know. There's something about like again, like 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 stuck in small towns. One, there's also kind of like small town movies, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, which is is again like part of the whole stuck in a small town, like genre in a way. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just he he's the variable that's put in this small town. Um, and then that leads us to the final question: How does this film fit within the stuck in a small town genre, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of my favorite things about this subgenre, and, and we'll get more into it throughout the month, is like the idea of like local color and and yeah. like having these little supporting characters. And I'm I'm a character actor kind of guy, so maybe that's why I'm drawn to this uh, genre. But but I, I think it, any of these movies has to have this idea of like there's like local color. There's some kind of like shopkeeper or waitress or something and they you you come to learn more about them and something kind of it's usually kind of quirky or idiosyncratic and and i think that's what makes this one kind of like one of the ultimate ones is like usually it it, part of the journey of like the stuck in a small town is coming to like befriend that person or coming to recognize the patterns of like yeah um you know i'm trying to think in in like like cars uh you know it's like yeah uh, it's, it's the mechanics in cars basically yeah yeah, yeah. And, and it's woody harrelson know. and doc hollywood yeah, yeah 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 and 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 this idea of like coming becoming part of the town and becoming part of the patterns in itself and that is what this movie is about it's like not only does he find like one local color friend it, it he he becomes friends with everybody in the town and he starts to recognize yeah. the patterns of every part of the town and becomes familiar with with every single part of the town's culture so mm. uh you know normally in in a movie like this you'd get like maybe one or two things um uh but yeah with this one it's it's everything he he completely yeah. assimilates into every part of the local color of this town yeah do you think he moves the town at the end <laughs> take, take away the blog that that, that danny rubin does do you think he like actually they, him and like uh rita stay in the town 
Or they I, just I, like, I don't think you're around, but I think they de- they're definitely back for Groundhog Day. They year. probably come back for Groundhog Day. Yeah. I think so too. I think I think they're they're big. Uh, and I also forgot to add all this stuff is that like after this is kind of a film fact thing. Uh, after because they they didn't shoot the, the uh, Groundhog Day in Woodstock or in Pucks County. Uh, Woodstock developed their own Groundhog Day celebrations because oh. of this movie. Is what it was. Um, <laughs> And and basically now Puxatani and Woodstock have like thousands of people come every year to see the location or to celebrate Groundhog Day is what it is. So thanks, Groundhog Day. You affected these small towns and their businesses in a good way for the most part. Um, but yeah, but that's it on Groundhog Day, I feel like, Thomas, right? We don't have anything else on Groundhog Day you so. want to say? Yep. Um, so next week, what are we talking about, Thomas? Uh, next week we'll be talking about one of my personal all-time favorites. Let's go ahead and show my bias there. Uh, but it's the film Local Hero. Uh, you might not have seen that one. So we, we gave you we gave you Groundhog Day as a as an easy pitch. Now you have to go do your homework and watch Local Hero. Local Hero. Yeah, uh, Groundhog Day, which is streaming on Netflix. Uh, Local Hero is not streaming anywhere right now. It feels like, uh, but. It's available to rent streaming at my house on Blu-ray. So hit me every day, every day. Uh, You can rent it on Apple TV, uh, Amazon, Google play, YouTube. So you can rent for two 99 or if you want to buy it, you can buy it as well. Um, uh, There's also a really beautiful uh, criterion Mm -hmm. uh, version of it as well. So that's, that's, if you can, if you can buy that in time, if you want to, (laughs) you won't be disappointed. That's a great film. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon. Uh, this past month, we kind of did a few like dystopian type movies. We talked about uh, La Jete, this kind of French New Wave short film that Thomas and I both love. And then David and I talked about Georgia Marauders uh, Metropolis, this kind of like 1980s uh, scored version of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. We kind of go into the history of that. Uh, I know this month, I know David and I are talking about Elizabethtown. I don't know if you mm-hmm. ever talked. I, I don't know if I told you that. Thomas um a movie I for some reason really like <laughs> um and we're gonna we're gonna explore that on the patreon because uh, there's also kind of an interesting history of that movie as well um but, but yeah be sure to try our patreon if you can it's more exclusive content uh the top tier gets two episodes uh a month and, and then that's the ten dollar when you have a five dollar one that gets one and then we have a one dollar uh subscription as well so join that if you can that helps us continue to do the show as we're doing it and we can talk about more movies so please do that if you can mm-hmm. um and that's all we have for you if you have any questions for us feel free to contact us in the podcast at gmail.com send us your questions comments and if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us be sure to subscribe to the nation podcast to stay updated on all of our new episodes you can subscribe to our show on our podcast spotify google podcast or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already be sure to write us for your preferred podcast platform Guys, for everyone who listens this far in the podcast, it's like watching through the credits. I saved a special joke just for you. Uh, So today we've talked about the story of someone traveling to a remote location for a once a year annual celebration and then being stuck there and being unable to leave. So that's the story of Phil Connors and also shout out to everyone who's at Burning Man right now and cannot get out of the desert, except for Chris Rock. he made it out so but also review our podcast is that yeah but also review the podcast (laughs) i was just saving the special special joke for the end post credit scene (laughs) am i right or am i right am i right did you see chris rock walked out five miles no i i didn't i haven't paid attention to any of the burning man stuff oh they can't there's seventy thousand people stuck in the desert they can't get out gotta hate that (laughs) by the time this podcast comes out they might still be in the desert 
but Chris, but Chris Rock got out. Chris basically. Rock made it out with Diplo. He and Diplo walked six miles to get out. <laughs> I mean, anyway, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, X, uh, Instagram, Letterbox, TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.